The title of the sermon is This is Better. And uh, you, you probably think to yourself, oh, that's kind of a weird title of a sermon. Well, I'm going to introduce this sermon by telling you uh, all about the eye doctor. Raise your hand if you've never been to the eye doctor. Excellent. It looks like everybody here has took a trip to the eye doctor at some point in their life. Now, I myself have taken lots of trips to the eye doctor. I've seen lots of different eye doctors, some uh, more uh, specialized in the eye than others. Uh, for a couple of different reasons. We won't go into all those here because trying to keep this kind of short. But um, but I have seen regular eye doctors. I have seen specialized eye doctors. And I actually got to see some pretty cool things. Like part of uh, my trip to the eye doctors, I got to see a picture of my eye. And they injected something in my arm. And I got to watch it go through the back of my eye. That's pretty cool. Some some of you guys probably like, that's gross. I don't want to know about that. So sorry about that. But... In all my trips to the eye doctor, they're trying to do one thing, and they're trying to discern if I have good vision or not. Can I see what a normal person can see? Well, that's what they want to know. Uh, can I see the best that I can see? Am I seeing to the, my best ability? And so um, I had the, the, uh, the privilege and the opportunity of receiving a laser eye surgery, and in part of that laser eye surgery, I got to do some pretty cool things, like all this workups for your eye to determine if your eye can actually handle being zapped with a laser. Um, and then some other things like actual the, the actual surgery. Now, that surgery wasn't bad. Um, they took a like sonic toothbrush thing and scrubbed my eye to scrub all the skin off. And then uh, I got all these, see all these fancy lights, blue, green, red, purple. They flashed and then... Bright light that you could not imagine. The brightest light you could ever imagine. And then for 10 seconds from one eye, and I think it was 12 or 13, maybe 14 seconds in the other eye. Then it was over with. I got up, and well, before that, before I tell you what the results were, part of the workup for that was me sitting in a chair in a dark room with a screen, like the screen's here, with letters on the screen. And you see, they would ask me, which of the lines could I read the best? And so, as I'm sure you guys have done as well, you try to read the smallest line. Nope, I wasn't having that. I couldn't even see the bottom line. That was not going. So I tried the next line. Couldn't see that one either. So I tried the third line up. Third line up, I'm like, all right, I'm good. I can see this. It isn't fuzzy. I kind of squint a little bit. All right, so I'm like, yep, okay, let's see. N, B, C, O, N, P. Good. And they're like, Ugh, you only got two of those right. Are you kidding me? Only two? So I read the next line up, and of course I get all those 100% correct, and they're like, all right, you have like 2100 or something like that. Not super terrible, but not, not 2020 for sure. So, um, so I go undergo this laser eye surgery, and um, I get up and I walk out of the room, and I look down the hallway out of the window, and I can see every leaf on the tree. Pretty cool. I have relief on the tree. Now, you yourself may have uh, been in a, a similar si- situation in the eye doctor's office where you're sitting there and they're like, hey, which one of these lines can you read? And you're trying to read the line like I'm trying to see that clock back there and I cannot see it. Um, it's, I can only see the hands. Um, but it's all fuzzy. And so they say, all right, now you tell me what's better. Now? And then click, click. Now, now. And you'll say, if you're like me, uh, it's about the same. So then they go and 
say, all right, hang on a second. And they change some things, click, 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 and it gets really blurry. You're like, whoa, I can't see nothing. Can't even see the top line. Uh, you're like, all right, now tell me what's better. Now, and you're thinking to yourself, this is definitely not better for anything. Uh, and then click, 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 now. And you're like, wow, this is better. I can actually see the top three lines and the fourth line I can see now. And they're like, all right, hang on a second. And they like, move some dials, change some things around. And they're like, all right, now you tell me what's better, A or B? And you go, click, and you're like, wow. They even got even sharper. Now I can see the 2020 line. I can not only see the letters there, but I can see the numbers out to the left of it that say what it is. Excellent. And you see, you're like, this is better. And they're like, all right, one last time. Adjust some things around, and you're like, click, click, better or worse? Click, click, and you're like, mmm, slightly worse. All right, okay. They adjust some other things around. I don't have any idea what they're doing. I'm not an eye doctor, so. But anyway, they adjust some things around. And they're like, click, click, better or worse? Click, click. And you're like, oh, okay, this is better. So they go back to the original setting that, that you actually can see everything. Uh, and they say, okay, between these two, which one do you like more? This one or this one? And they click between the two, and you're like, all right, you know, whichever one is better. And then you say, this is better. And why is this better? Because you can see with clear acuity the number, the letters that are on there. So once you thought the O, now you see it's actually a C. There's actually a piece of that line missing. It's really a C. The letter you thought was a Z, you can see it's actually an S. And you know a Z and an S, they don't come in the same spot in the alphabet. And so the letters that you thought was once a P is now you see is a B. Um... And so, it is with the institution of marriage in light of culture. You see, culture and the way that we understand marriage outside of the Word of God, it blurs those letters for us. It makes that acuity somewhat difficult to discern. What is the intention of marriage? What is the design of marriage? What does God design marriage to be? And for us, looking through the lens of culture, being submersed in culture... That line is blurred. Those letters are blurred. Those numbers we cannot see. But when we get into the Word of God, we analyze the framework that God has designed marriage to be, we get to see a a clearer picture. And we see with eyes that are focused. And that marriage, that, that idea of marriage, that that institution of marriage is much better. It is better than the idea that culture presents of marriage. And so I challenge you to think about that this morning. As we marriage, we look at how God designed marriage. What is biblical marriage? Let me go ahead and, and say this real quick. Right now in the 21st century, in the culture we live in, marriage is under attack even stronger than ever before with the, the, the confusion of what is male. You know, uh, Previous generations, it was never confused. A man is a man with man parts. That's a man. A woman is a woman with woman parts. That's a woman. But today, there is no clear... uh, Let me take that back. There is an unclear definition of what a woman is, what a man is, and what the cross between the two, with with the introduction of the cross between between the two. And so, an idea of marriage being between a man and a woman is kind of confused now. Because sometimes it's between a man and a man, sometimes it's between two women, sometimes it's between a half man, half woman, and something else. 
Who knows? But culture has confused this, this image of marriage, this image of who a man is and who a woman is, has confused that image. And so there's this confusion that's happening right now in our culture, which is why it is hard for us to understand sometimes God's design for marriage. So, what is biblical marriage? Let me go ahead and define this in clear, real terms uh, that honors God. Biblical marriage is the covenantal relationship, okay? The covenantal relationship between a man with men's genitalia and a woman naturally born with women's genitalia who both are redeemed by the blood of Christ, who committed themselves to following Christ, both parties have committed themselves to following Christ, who have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have been baptized again, who are awaiting the hope of the resurrection, and who stand before God in honor to Him. They commit themselves together as one unit, and they say a vow to each other, and they say, until death do us part, I commit myself to you to become one flesh. And that is the biblical definition of the institution of marriage. And you say, okay, Brother Mike, why is that important? Well, let me, let me explain why this is important to you. The biblical definition of marriage is important because it is an image of the display of the gospel. We're going to talk about that in a lot of detail here in a second. It's important because it is the tangible image, the tangible image, okay, of the intimacy of God with us. I'm going to also explain that in great detail in a moment. It is the tangible image of the mystery of the depth of love that Jesus has for his church. And the marriage of Christ and the church the marriage of Christ and the church is the perfect is the perfect example from which we ought to model our marriages. Y'all with me? Culture's confused what biblical marriage is. Culture's confused rather what marriage period is. Culture's confused the, the roles of the wife, the roles of the husband, and we're going to kind of briefly talk about those roles here and this morning. Um, but marriage. Why is the enemy so against marriage? Let me tell you, marriage is the first order institution for the family. Marriage is the most important relationship in the home. You see, Adam was created first, then Eve, and they were married, and then came the children. Marriage is the most important relationship in the home. If the marriage is messed up, every other subsequent relationship that follows out of that will not be correct. Marriage between a man and a woman bears the image of Christ in the church. We're the image bearers of God. We were created in God's image. So marriage between a man and a woman, biblical marriage, bears the image of Christ in the church. A defamation of biblical marriage by God's people defames the image of Christ and the church. And that's a serious offense. And so we're talking about this, um, we're talking about this illustration of biblical marriage, and we're going to talk very, very in depth here in a little bit about um, women and men, about Jesus and the church, 
and about the gospel display that's presented therein. Okay, so uh, turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to read verses 21 through verse 33. It says this, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Father, we just want to come to you, God. We just want to thank you for this time we get to gather together. Father, we get to worship you, Father, um, in the singing of songs to glorify your name and uh, just to lift you on high, Father. Father, this time we're gathered together to learn from your word and what you've instituted in the design for marriage, God, uh, this mystery that you're revealing to us, Father, between your love, between yourself and the church, Father, and how um, the, the image of marriage between a man and a woman is uh, a, a foreshadowing of the marriage between you and the church, Father, and what you're doing, Father, and your intimate love towards us. And so, Father, I pray, Father, as I feel so... In my eight years of marriage, unqualified to preach this sermon, that you would present grace, not only to me and to the words that come out of my mouth, but also to the hearers here, Father. Help us to see what a husband's role is, what a wife's role is. Help us to see what my role as a single man or woman is, what my role as the church is to honor you, Father, and the institutions that you've created, to honor your creation, Father, as your creation, but to honor you, Father God, as the creator. And so, Father, I pray for the people this morning that their eyes would be open, that their hearts would be open, that their ears would be open to hear your word, Father. Father, that as with the parable of uh, the seeds, Father, that the seeds that are sown here, Father, would fall on fertile, rich ground that is well prepared and well cultivated to receive the seed, Father, and that would bear forth much increase, Father, some 30, 60, 100 fold, Father. So, Father, this morning as we open your word and we, we, we analyze your word to see what you've created us to do as spirit-filled people, uh, Father, that you would be honored and you'd be glorified, Father. And, Father, that you would remove any distraction from this, this place, Father. You would remove any hindrance, Father. And, Father, that you would just overwhelmingly shadow this place with your Holy Spirit, Father. Move in a mighty way, Father. And, Father, we just honor you and glorify you. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so you know, last week Brian showed us what it is to look 
what we are to look like when we live out the theology that we were taught in Ephesians chapter 1 through verse 4. We're moving into practical theology. That's theology we live out. We learn in Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 4 that um, what our theology ought to be, and now we're learning how we ought to live it out. And Brian talked about that as individuals, we are spirit-filled, and we ought to live in such a way that we are making melodies, singing spiritual songs and hymns to, to one another, to the Lord, I'm sorry, to the Lord, um, being, speaking and giving thanks to the Lord for all things that we have, and here in verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we, as a family, are subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the fear there doesn't mean terror, it doesn't mean like, I'm going to get beat, let me flinch. It means awe and reverence. And we look at God the Father and what He's done, what He's doing. We look at the work of Christ and how He's indwelled us with the Spirit. We're Spirit-filled people, and we're in awe of God and His creation. We're in awe of each other. I'm sorry, we're in awe of God as we commit to each other to live a life uh, that glorifies Him. And we're subject to one another because you are my best advocate here on earth to live a holy life. And I am yours. You see, I, when I am failing, might not want to admit that, but you would help me see my fault um, and restore me in a spirit of gentleness, as the Bible says. So what we're talking about here is uh, living out this practical theology and what it looks like in the church, what it looks like in our homes. And so... Even as we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ, that sets the framework for verses 22 through um, 33. Or sorry, yeah, 22 through 33. That sets the framework for it. So even as we're subject to one another, wives also be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what we're going to be talking about here is, you know, why this is important. Uh, Verse 21 is important because this is the means by which we're accountable to each other, preventing each other from being swept away by the evilness of our day. Okay, Um, we are accountable to each other as members of this family. My brother does something wrong and he's going to get punished. Uh, Hey, man, you probably shouldn't do that. No, actually, in our family, um, I should probably tell my brother we shouldn't do this instead of telling him he should do it. Right. Because then if I tell him we should do it, well, he told me that it was okay. Well, we're both getting in trouble. So we're family members, right? We come alongside each other. And when we see a fault in someone, in one of our brothers or sisters, we come alongside them and grab them by the arm. We lift them up and we say, all right, let's not do that. Uh, We restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But we also, being spirit-filled individuals, um, come alongside those who are grieving those that are hurting, we lift them up. We, we weep with those that are weeping. We rejoice with those that are rejoicing. Because we're family. But this sets the precedence of how we are to view marriage, marriages and, and the relationships uh, with children. And so today we're going to be looking at the parallels of the institution of marriage uh, and the church. And uh, institution of marriage and uh, the institution of the church. Uh, with Christ and vice versa. So we're going to be talking about three things this morning, uh, three major bullet points. The biblical submission of the wife and the church. Um, and we're going to be looking at the biblical headship of the husband and Jesus Christ. And then the third thing we're going to talk about 
is the gospel image of marriage. Marriage is one of the best evangelical tools that you have. So, in verses 22, it says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is in a command, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That word subject there means submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, the key here is as to the Lord. The command here is to yield to the authority of the husband in the same manner that you yield to the authority of the Lord. It's, a, it's kind of an unpopular uh, model in today's society, in culture today. It's unpopular to say that a woman should yield anything to a man. But this is biblical. This is what God's Word says, that the woman, the wife, is to yield to the authority of the husband in the same manner she yields to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This model brings glory to God because it is the first picture that unbelievers tangibly get to see of how the church submits to Christ. This model brings glory to God because it is the first picture of that unbelievers get to see of, tangibly of how the church submits to Christ. Now, we're talking about biblical submission here. And now let me tell you what biblical submission is not. Biblical submission is not blind authoritarian following. But what it is, it is purposeful, it is intentional, and it is a relational expression of love. To the one under which she, the woman, willingly accepts submission to. Now, let me explain this for a second. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, ask the Lord. Who made you become a wife? Who forced you to become a wife? Nobody. So you willfully entered a contractual covenantal relationship with this man, your husband. So this is not slavery. It's not the idea of slavery. It's not authoritative. Um, and, and even the, say, the saying, as to the Lord, right here in the text of verse 22, presents that the wife submits to the husband as she submits to the Lord. And so the Lord does not micromanage your life. Doesn't micromanage my life. Um, and so what we, what we see here is biblical submissiveness is not this micromanaging type submissiveness. It's not a blind following. It is an intentional, it is a purposeful, and it is a relational expression of love to the husband. It is a purposeful and intentional relational expression of love as a, as a child of God to the Father. First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that, if, so that even if any of them are the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So biblical submission of the wife, it's purposeful in that this, in this way, That if your husband is disobedient to the word, that by your actions and reactions, your husband would be won back to obedience to the word of God. 
because they observe your respectful behavior. They observe your chaste behavior. The wife has got, has got the, the privilege, the privilege of being the first person to correct a backslidden husband. But her actions and her responses, but not necessarily with her words. This means that, wives, you do not have to uh, preach to your husbands continually 24-7 about what they have or have not done. Um, but it does mean that by your actions and your responses and the way you react with your husband, that you have the opportunity to bring him back into submission to the Lord and back into submission to the Word of God. It does, uh, this does present an unnatural response to the cultural normative. Uh, so culturally, it's not normal for someone to withhold their tongue for a second to allow um, to allow their actions to speak louder than their words, so to speak, if you will. And so um, culture would say, no, oh, if my man did that, I would tell him all about it. You know, but God tells us that we ought to be different than that. Specifically, as spirit filled Christians, we ought to be different than that. So, if we look at this, uh, we see that this is purposeful and intentional, and it's an expression of love. If you'll turn to me in Proverbs chapter 31, I want to show you the beauty of a submissive wife and the freedom of a submissive wife. In Proverbs chapter 31, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10 through 31, we're going to, re- we're going to read all of these. Um, it's kind of lengthy, bear with me, but it says this. This is a description of a worthy woman, an excellent woman. It says this in verse 10, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. The heart of her husband trusts in her. That is important. And he will have no lack of gain. She does does him good and not evil all the days of her life. We're talking about the godly wife here. We're talking about the woman who submits to her husband in a biblical way. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and delights with her and works with her hands. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the staff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is and purple. So we're talking about the preciousness, the preciousness of or the beauty of a submissive wife. Look at this. She does good to her husband and her husband trusts in her discernment. The heart of her husband trusts in her. That's an honor. When somebody comes to you and asks your advice, hey, what do you think I should do about this? Hey, what do you think? um, What do you think we should do about this? What do you think? Uh, how do you feel about this? When, when somebody comes to you and they're inquiring of your counsel for a decision they're going to make in their life, a life, major life decision, if you will, like that's an honor. Count it an honor when people ask your advice. But wives, count it an honor when your husband trusts in your heart. 
that they can present something to you and know that you're going to give them godly counsel. She does him good all and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and works with her hands in delight. She's delighted to be busy. She's delighted to do things. It doesn't say the husband dictates what she does. No. Nope. It says she's delighted to do work with her hands. She goes out and she looks for things that she needs. She's intentional. <clears throat> she brings food from afar. She's, she can gather. She's smart. She rises while it's night and she prepares food for her household and for her maidens. And so she is intentional. She's, uh, she stewards her house well. She finds a field and buys it. She's economical. She's resourceful. And she takes her earnings and she plants a vineyard. She considers the money that she's made and she makes useful purpose from it. She girds herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She is not weak. We're talking about the biblical, the biblically submissive wife is not weak. She senses that her gain is good and her lamp does not go out at night because she's well prepared. She stretches out her staff, grasps the hands of the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She has an abundance. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. Her household is taken care of. Not afraid of what the concerns are because her house is prepared, is taken care of. She makes coverings for herself and her clothing is fine linen and purple. She's clothed in royalty. What a beautiful picture of a wife. This is God's design for the woman. It's not that the woman is incapable Or not that the woman is less than a man. It's that God has designed a specific role for a woman to fill. And culture attempts to be their own God and to be wise. Culture has perverted that image. So we look at the man. uh, Sorry, we look at the church. And I ask this question. If, if the woman, if the godly woman is, is to act like this with the husband, then how is the church to act with Christ? Uh, <clears throat> the church is to be subject to Christ as well. In verse 24, we'll see that back in the main text. We'll turn back to me, verse 24. It says this, But as the church is subject to Christ, also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. So the church is also to be subject to Christ. So does our church paint a good picture? A good picture of marriage. Does our church paint a good picture for the, as an example for the wife to follow? I ask you that. Challenge yourself. Think about that. Do I paint a good picture in my following of Christ that a wife, a young wife, would want to model how I follow Christ after um, and how she would embody that with her husband? Observing our church, its interactions, its actions and reactions to biblical teachings. Would you build your marriage or encourage someone else to build your marriage off this model? And so that's what I challenge you to do. Intrinsically look at yourself. Intrinsically look at our church and see, does our church paint a proper image that a young lady would like to model 
in her marriage to her husband. And you say, you might be thinking, okay, well, I'm single uh, or I'm a widow. How does this apply to me? And so if you're single, think about who you're going to marry. Think about the dating relationship that you have. And I would encourage you to strongly consider the man, if you're a woman, uh, <clears throat> the man to which you're going to willingly submit yourself to. And if he isn't a godly, a God-honoring man, a man who's willing to submit himself to Christ, he's not worth willing uh, you to submit yourself to. And widows, um, people who have been married, uh, if, if you... Or thinking, how does this apply to me? I'd encourage you uh, in Titus 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, to look at the beauty uh, of your role, the preciousness of your role uh, in the church. Older women in Titus 2, um, verses 3 through 5 says this. Older women likewise be reverent to the, in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women... To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being kind and subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You have a, you have a vital role in the church to mentor younger women, to teach them to love their children, to teach them to honor God. So we look at the husband, verses 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also... Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. We look at the husband and we see um, in verses 23 that this is the established order, that God has established the order. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, it's key to identify here that Christ is the head of the church. That Christ does not micromanage the church, but by his own sacrifice, okay, that self-sacrifice, his own willing self-sacrifice, he enables the church to live with a purpose. To live without fear, to live with hope, to live forgiven, to live saved, sealed, and confident. Husbands, I ask you, I ask us, myself included, do I, do we live in such a way before our wives in self-sacrifice that we present our wives with the ability and with the encouragement to live with a purpose, to live without fear, to live with hope, to live in forgiveness, to live saved and sealed and confident in our marriage. One of the most tragic things a husband can do is to undermine his marriage by making his wife unconfident in her ability to be his wife. One of the most tragic things a man can do in his marriage is to compare his wife to other women, making her feel inadequate to the task. So I challenge us as husbands that we ought not to treat our wives this way, but we ought to give them the ability to live and steward our homes well in accordance with Proverbs 31. We give her the ability to be the godly wife that God designed her to be. We give her the ability to be submissive to us in the manner that as they are submissive to Christ, as we follow Christ, we embody the love that Christ has for his church, that self-sacrificial love that enables our wives to live and fulfill the godly role that God has placed upon them. This is our godly role. This is a high task, men. Are you to it? Christ is the Savior of the body. He gave himself for the body of 
the church. This example is self-sacrifice. It's good for the church to establish a means for this covenantal relationship to occur. We are in covenant with Christ as church. Husbands, we are in covenant with our wife in marriage. We look and we see the obedience of Christ, that this is intentional and it does not allow for own laziness or lack of effort. Husbands, consider with me how much effort was given by Christ to live a perfect life, how he was born of a virgin, how he was tempted in the desert for 40 days by Satan himself, how he was ministered to by the angels. This is obedience that Christ exhibited. It is not lack of effort. It is not laziness. Husbands, we ought to also, for our wives, not be lazy, not show a lack of effort, but we ought to consider how much effort that Christ gave to the to gave, gave in his life in order that he would ransom the church to himself. And husbands, we ought to do the same, give the same effort, the same sacrifice for our wives. Christ endured the cross. That's the kind of self-sacrifice. He was beaten. But more than that, he endured the cross for his bride. And I ask myself, what have I done for my bride? Husbands, I challenge you to love your wives and ask yourself, what have you done for your bride? In verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, we have to love our wives. Christ loves the church. This type of love, that love that Christ loves the church with is unconditional. It's affectionate. And it's regardless of whether or not it's deserved. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greater that I see my sin, the greater I view the propitiation that Christ has given me. The redemption that Christ has given me. When I see my sin for what it is, I see the value of Christ's atoning work. Amen? And so, this is a self-sacrificial love, and I do not deserve the love of Christ. It is grace that He gives it to me, and it is mercy that He does not give me judgment. Amen? So, husbands, it does not matter whether your wife is deserving of this love. It does not matter. You are to love your wives. I am to love my wife. And this love displayed is a graceful love. This love is the love that Christ gives the church. Sacrificial love. Christ gave himself up for his bride. This puts aside personal gain for the betterment of the bride. Husbands, we have to put aside our personal gain for the betterment of our wives. How do we demonstrate this, husbands? Ask yourself that. How do we demonstrate this? Christ gave himself up for his bride. How am I putting aside my personal gain for my wife and her betterment? Humility in marriage. That's a key way we can put aside our personal gain. Humbly lead our wife. Humbly give for our wives. Understanding. There was nothing that the church could do without Christ's intervention to be holy. There was nothing the church could do without Christ's intervention to be holy. Amen. First Peter 3, 7 says that you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. As with some weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, we ought to live with our wives in an understanding way, and we ought to honor her as a fellow grace of life. A fellow heir of the grace of life. Christ loves his church. He loves her so much that he 
that he gave himself so up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, the water, washing of water with the word. Sorry. Um, that he might present to himself a ch- the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she would be holy and blameless. <clears throat> church. Christ is leading his church to purity. Husbands, you ought to lead your wives to purity. How? By the presentation of the word. You're walking together in sanctification for the glory of God. <clears throat> Husbands, it's our duty and it's, and it's our responsibility before God to lead our wives and our families in the worship of Christ and to be the sole or rather, to be the first uh, proponents of truth in our homes. And and the, these selfless acts have benefit our families, but they also um, benefit yourself in the way that when you do for your wife, uh, when you take care of your wife, when you give her the ability to live in freedom in your marriage, that it's, it, it's freeing and it's going to be beneficial to your home. Look at this real quick in verse 28. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies, for he himself loves his own wife, loves himself as your own body. Look at the logic here. Husbands who love their wives as his, as his own body properly views the design of God, <clears throat> properly views his wife in the design of God. It is good to love yourself, but not to idolize yourself. Well, culture would tell us we should idolize ourselves because I'm the only one that matters. However, God is telling us that uh, he is the main object of focus, of focus here. And so it's good to love your wife as yourself. This is under submission to Christ. You should love your own body. It was given to you by God himself. The husband is to nourish and cherish his own flesh. If you look here with me, for no one, in verse 29, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ also does the church. So husbands, we ought to nourish and cherish our own flesh, our wife being a part of our own flesh or extension of our own flesh. How do I nourish my wife spiritually and physically and emotionally? How do I cherish? If you will see in the creation of man and woman in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, um, Verse 31 in the text is a quote from that. And it says this, uh, in verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so if we look at this in Genesis, uh, the account in Genesis is a direct quote from there. It says this in chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, The Lord God fashioned into woman a, from fashioned into a woman the rib which he took, had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Husbands, love your wives as your own body because she is your flesh. The two shall become one flesh. You are working in marriage, in biblical marriage. You're working to take two independent wills and to mold them together to become one will. You're taking two independent people, molding them together, becoming one flesh, one entity, to accomplish one singularity goal. One singular goal in singularity. Jesus nourishes, nourishes and cherishes his church. How the church submits to Jesus is that we take 
an independent will and we mold it in conformity to the will of Christ. We are becoming in likeness of Christ. And how do we see that evident in our midst today? Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. Husbands, nourish and cherish your wives. Are we personally being nourished and cherished by Christ? Are you personally being nourished and cherished by Christ? Are you the real bride or are you an imitation bride? Culture will present lots of imitation brides. However, husbands are to seek the real bride. The church is to seek the bride, Christ. What does this look like in the context of American culture? It's skewed. Um, it's skewed. How does, so husbands, or men, you might ask yourself, how does this apply to me since I'm single or uh, I'm widowed? And I would tell you, husbands, or men, if you're single and you don't have a wife, you ought to be looking at this very, very close, and you ought to be uh, embodying these characteristics uh, of how you are going to love Christ or how you are loving Christ right now as you walk and how you will love a woman who God blesses you with. How you are to view her as precious as, as, and, and, and the ways that you will honor her, the ways that you will disciple her. And then, men, uh, if you're widowed, Titus 2, um, verse 6 says that you are to teach young men to be sensible. The calling of a husband is a high calling. The calling of a wife, the role of a wife, is a high calling. It's not something that can be done outside the context of the grace of Christ. It's not something that can be done outside of the provisions of Christ. So we look at the gospel image of marriage, and, and um, we're going to say this is a parallel. We've been looking at this this whole time, but let me clarify it for you. The husband is a picture of Christ. As he leads the wife, so Christ leads the church. As he is responsible for the wife, so Christ is responsible for the church. As he gives himself up for his wife, so Christ gave himself up for the church. As he, um, is, as he is a protector of his wife, so Christ is a protector of the church. The wife is a picture of the church. As she submits to her husband, so the church submits to Jesus Christ. As she follows her husband, so the church follows Christ. As she um, manages and stewards the, the, entire, the, the, the givings of her husband or the wealth of her and her husband, so the church stewards well the wealth that is given to them uh, or to us by Christ. This relationship is a picture of divine intimacy that Jesus has with his people. If you think of the fullness of the marriage relationship, Scripture says that we are his body. We're members of one another because we are partakers or we share of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is an intimate relationship that's shared between two people. But marriage is an intimate relationship that is a portrayal of the intimacy of creation. And it's unlike any other relationship that Jesus has with other created beings. It's a great mystery, Paul says in verse 32. This is a great mystery. This mystery is great, but I am speaking to you with reference to Christ and the church. <clears throat> Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So, real quick, um, 
the main or the the most the main thing that a woman desires is to be loved and the main thing that a husband desires is to be respected. And so that's summing up the uh, the roles of, of the wife and the husband. But look at the look at the gospel parallel here between marriage. You see um, the fullness of the marriage relationship. And we're getting ready to close here. We're at the end. But I just want to show this to you real quick. The, the gospel is proclaimed through a biblical marriage and the intimacy that the husband shares with the wife. I have a relationship with my wife that another man has. I tell my wife things that no other person knows. I, I, I do things with my wife that nobody else gets to do. And my wife takes joy in that. My wife does things with me that tells me things that no other person knows. My wife entrusts in me things that no other person entrusts me to. There's an intimacy there. We share uh, food off the same plate. If you come take food off my plate, I'm going to smack you. Like, my wife can do that free, you know? Um, there, we, we drink after each other. We share a physical intimacy that no one else gets to partake in. And likewise, Christ in the church, he himself loves us intrinsically, loves us, puts value on us. I put value in my wife. She has value. No matter what anybody else says about her, she's valuable to me. Christ. Likewise, puts value in us as a church. And you see this intimacy that's developed between Christ and his people. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have an intimacy with God that no other created being has. We have a promise of God that no other created being has. To what other created being has he said, I will place my spirit in you? We share in that intimacy of Christ. Your marriage is the best evangelical tool that you have. Because when someone looks at my wife and says, how can you trust your husband like that? She can say, because I trust in my God. And my husband is following my God. And he would never lead us in different places. This is the beauty of marriage and the church. And even Jesus is going to redeem the church. If you look in Revelation chapter 19, look me real fast. And chapter 19, I know I'm a little bit over the time, but we'll, we'll conclude here very soon. That we're looking at the gospel image of Christ in the church. Right now, Christ is present with us in spirit, but not physically. But soon, a physical appearance of Christ will be had. And this church will rejoice in this marriage supper of the feast. In verse 7, it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Speaking of Christ, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride was made, made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen and bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's your fine linen, church. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And we see here, we see here the marriage feast of Christ in the church. The church is clothed, made herself ready, adorned herself with the bridal veil, with a bridal dress, walking down the aisle. Those are the righteous acts of us, the saints. Praise God that Christ is making the church ready to be received unto himself, to share in a physical relationship 
that will last for eternity. This is primarily, this passage in Ephesians primarily discusses, discusses the relationship of Jesus to the church, but also um, the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. The summation of it. You see, the biblical institution of marriage presents and portrays the image that God has for us and with us. It presents and portrays the images of Christ in the church, and it preaches the gospel. So in conclusion, as the band comes forward, I'm going to ask you to consider these things. God's design for the human institution of marriage is better than that that is presented by culture. It's more defined. It's less confusing. It's more, more coherent and stable. And it's a reflection of his love for his people. It's a reflection of himself. A departure from this design is idolatry of self and his worship of self. And Romans chapter 1 talks about that. Husbands have a holy responsibility. You have big shoes to fill. The headship of the marriage just as the headship of Christ to the church. Wives have a holy responsibility. Submission and respect to the husband in the same attitude that the church is submissive and respective towards Christ. The church has a holy responsibility to be the bride of Christ, to adorn herself in the righteous acts of the saints, to be the example of the model of relationship for marriages, to be the example of what ought to be lived out in the institution of a man and a woman coming together in biblical marriage. This sets the context of what we're talking about next week. It sets the context of a balanced family in which uh, we'll look at the role of children in the family. But the marriage comes first. So I ask you this morning, church, I ask you, if you're here and you've heard this message, are you committed to Christ? Are you committed to being Christ's bride? Are you committed to, to adorning yourself in the righteous acts of the saints? Are you committed to, to doing those righteous acts? Or if you're confused about your role as a human being before a holy God who wants to have an intimate relationship with you, I'd ask you to consider that. Are you partaking of the gospel are you a member of the Bride of Christ, or are you just an outsider looking in? Are you in a casual dating relationship with God, or are you in a committed relationship with God?